0: Welcome to the QAV Investing Podcast, episode eight. If you are new uh, to the show, welcome. This is an investing podcast where me, Cameron Riley, talk to my old mate, Tony Kynaston. Tony's a very successful investor based in Sydney, been doing it for 30 years. He has a system that he's developed from studying people like Warren Buffett. We call it QAV, quality at value. How do you buy shares in quality companies? Mostly means companies that are... Producing a lot of cash year after year, uh, but buy them at a discount. That's where the value bit comes in. Kind of a form of value investing with Tony's own tweaks. But it's based on a checklist system where we can throw a bunch of data in. We give companies a score, and then we buy the companies with the highest scores. It also tells us when to sell those companies, which is important. Anyway, um, this week on the show, we've got a lot to cover. We're talking about the war, a lot about the war and how that affects markets. Uh, recent bank rate increases that we're plugging into our numbers. Uh, Mwys bad results and the collapse of its share price last week. Con- speaking of collapses, the collapse of ProBuild, major construction company in Australia, and uh, what that might signal to the market. Berkshire Hathaway's annual letter to shareholders, sort of what we call Christmas for value investors every March. GRR's results and how that uh, skyrocketed their share price uh, earlier this week. Portfolio average hold time for us, how, how, all, uh, how long we tend to hold stocks in our portfolio. Uh, the impact of outdated consensus valuations in Stock Doctor. We answer some questions from our listeners about five-year relative strength and whether or not that's important to look at. How to calculate Kaga in Excel, at performance, and whether or not it's a red flag if the dividend payout ratio is greater than 100%. Long show today. Uh, I think the, the premium episode goes for an hour and a half, but this this episode, the free episode, only goes for half an hour. I'll explain more about the difference between the two at the end, but uh, let's get into it, eh? Welcome to qav 508 TK. How you doing? Better with age, your t-shirt says. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I've got my Murray Brothers bourbon t-shirt on. Oh. Yes, better with age, exactly. Uh. Uh.
0: Uh, your, uh, your last day down at Cape Shank today?
1: Yes, I'll leave tomorrow morning, back in oh. Sydney on the weekend. Well, oh, that's good. Yeah, I don't know, Sydney's <laughs> popping the rain at the moment too, so I'm not oh, sure yeah. it's yeah. worth going back to. But yeah, I need to get back.
0: Might have to take a puddle on you, a paddle, not a paddle, a paddle, <laughs> a paddle for the puddle on your way yeah. back. Um, well, it's been a big week um, in the markets, in the world. Oh. We've got a lot to cover and then I need to edit the show myself this week because mm. uh, my normal editor of this show for the last uh, four or five months, uh, Dennis, is <laughs> lives in Kharkiv in Ukraine. And he, as people who are in our Facebook group, uh, or follow me on Facebook anyway, might know he's um, posted an email I got from him. He's obviously gone underground and said probably Mm. won't be able to uh, work for you for a while. Um, So I guess the most interesting thing outside of the ins and outs of what's going on over there is for us as investors is the way the market handled it. Uh, the day before the invasion, the markets tanked. And the day of the invasion, they they uh, turned back up. And it's been sort of uh, boom days for the last couple of days. Lots of growth uh, across the board. A lot of our stocks are doing well. Markets in general seem to be handling it fairly well. I've read a number of different analyses uh, on why the market uh, picked up on the day of the invasion, like the biggest invasion in, probably at least in that part of the world since World War II. Um, nothing that I read really convinced me that anyone who was writing these articles really had a clue about what was going on. I read stuff in Chanticleer about interest rates. I read uh, somebody else quoting Rothschild, buy on the sound of the cannon, sell on the sound of trumpets. Um you know, you've been around a long time, Tony. Uh, not since World War II, but uh, no. <laughs> what's been your experience with wars and markets?
1: Yeah, so the Fin Review published some analysis about all of the wars in the 20th century, and they do tend to send the stock market down when they start, and it, it turns around and comes back pretty quickly soon after that, uh, including the big ones, World War, World War II in particular. Uh, I, I think... You know, I'll, I'll draw a long bow and say it's just the, the fact that the market doesn't like uncertainty and once once an invasion actually happens and people see it may not be the end of the world or the end of civilization as they know it, they, they, they buy the bargains. It's a bit more complicated than that because obviously commodity prices are affected, so oil and gold have both gone up, particularly oil. Gas has too because Russia is a big gas supplier and all the sanctions are going to hurt their business. Aluminium's in the same boat. Russia, I think, is the biggest producer of aluminium in the world, so aluminium prices are going up quickly. So I think, I think it's just the market adjusting. Right. I'll, I'll never forget, I remember when I was working at Shell in Brisbane back in the early 90s and I was talking to one of the service station operators that um, I, I looked after and he was saying he never made so much money as when the Gulf War started and he was in hospital with having an operation and was laid up for a week or two. And, uh just just traded the oil market while he was laid up in bed and um you know filled the tanks at his service station appropriately or let them run down and then refill them again quickly and sell it quickly and put the price up and whatnot and he made lots of money because uh, the oil price is very very fickle or very um it moves very volatile when uh when war starts especially well it did in that case in in middle in the Middle East and this ta- in this case it's Russia which is also a big oil producer
0: yeah I I, I you know, I also think that there's an element of military Keynesianism's got to be involved in this as well. Um, you know, everyone knows that when a war's going on, governments, uh, particularly the United States, are apt to set aside billions or trillions of dollars for to put their country on war footing or to support their allies. Sending them, uh, you know, aid or, or money to buy weapons, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which flows back into the economy. So it's probably an aspect of that around wartime as well. You know, they know that there's going to be a lot of money flowing into the economy.
1: Yeah, they, that, that's, there's a bit of that, but it doesn't really explain why the market goes down when the war starts and then rises quickly after that. So yeah, uh, but that's your reasoning. Certainly, the case why I think America was in Afghanistan for twenty odd years. Um, yes, <laughs> just uh, line the pockets of the contractors and the military operators for a long time,
0: yeah, and you know I've done a lot of analysis on how that works on the cold war show as as you know, and uh i, I was I was astounded when I did it, sort of to realize where all that money goes like you you kind of think that uh, go you know when there's uh, military spending, it goes to people who make guns and you know. Planes and ships and stuff like that, and then you start to realise that the United States has eight hundred military bases around the world, and mm-hmm. the Pentagon supplies those eight hundred bases and all of the people on those bases and all the people on boats, et cetera, with everything from condoms to toothpaste to food to software to you know you name it and uh, ping pong tables and <laughs> the the the. Businesses in America that supply all of those, uh, you know, dip their hands in the tin, in the Pentagon jar, and it's a huge part of their income. Tens of thousands of businesses uh, right across the U.S. uh, profit during war from Pentagon spending, and it's a big part of it, and it's easy money. They don't have to bid for it usually, or not very hard, because usually it's being doled out in an emergency during crisis times. Hmm. Quick! Need to spend
1: five hundred billion dollars. Mm. Who wants it? Yeah, no tender. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, so isn't it the old saying? The war breaks out by paper clips. I heard I don't that know. somewhere. Why, why do you do that? Well, because there were be a lot of paper clips going into the US army bases and going
0: overseas. Right. I thought it was to keep your you know, tie all your cash together. With <laughs> anyway, so I mean, it's. Um, It's really interesting times. Obviously, uh, terrible stuff going on, and uh, no one wants to see war going on under any circumstances. But uh, I guess there's not a lot we can do about it. We just need to Uh, stop stop buying Russian vodka,
1: I suppose. (laughs) If if you can reach out to the editor, it'd be great to have him on the show next week or as soon as we could, just to quiz him about what life's like over there during the, the during wartime.
0: Well. Sure, I'll try. I yeah. think he's probably more interested in keeping his <laughs> head, but who yeah, knows sure. what'll happen between now and then. Could all be over,
1: and it could be a lot worse for for us as well. Because I mean, look, the Russian rubles I think devalued by half. The interest rates are now twenty percent in Russia, and the stock market shut. So we we could have uh, invested in a, a Russian company, and we haven't, which is lucky. But um, they're doing it tough over there. The sanctions. We'll will probably have some long-term effect, probably not short-term effect in terms of getting out of the Ukraine, but some long-term effect. I guess
0: we'll see how it plays
1: out. I'll leave it till the after hours, but I did want to comment on just how crap the Australian journalism coverage of the war is and how one-sided it is, and I've found a couple of uh, people who are willing to give not so much a a Russian point of view as a, a deeper analysis into why Russia might be doing what it's doing, but I can save that till after hours. It's very interesting. Did you listen to my podcast about that? I did. Yep. Right. Well, the first episode. I think there's two episodes. I haven't gotten to episode two yet, but the first right. one, yeah.
0: Uh, the episode, the second one that we did the end of last week. Yeah, all about you know what's going on and the and the media coverage again. I was criticising the ABC media coverage. Mm, Just it's terrible. terrible, woeful. Anyway, it's rubbish. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, other news this week is you increase the bank rate in the checklist from three point four two percent to four point four nine percent. I saw somebody on Facebook ask where you came up with that number from. You want to remind people how you come up with the number?
1: Yeah, so that's the that's the uh, I use ANZ. That's the the bank I have my home loan with, but um, could be anyone any of the big majors. But it's the it's the home loan reference rate on their website. It's now four point four nine percent. And it's, it's risen since the last time I had a look at it, largely because bond, bond yields have risen. So clearly the, the bond market is getting out ahead of the RBA in terms of raising interest rates. And we're starting to see that flow through into um, interest rates for mortgages as well, which is what we're really referencing when we, when we do our check to see if yield is greater than the mortgage rate.
0: Only seems like yesterday that people were telling us that interest rates were going to go to zero and stay there forever.
1: Well, yeah, it was during the COVID cough, wasn't it? And after the COVID cough. hmm And now there's, you know, I think one of the reasons why the market has been a little buoyant recently is because people are, particularly in the US, starting to say that the war might put a handbrake on rate rises over there. So yeah. that's a bit of a Yahoo moment for the US market, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, Okay, so people are just doing your checklists uh, this week. If you haven't already, make sure you update that in the relevant spots in the checklist. MWI results Midway came out on Thursday uh, last week. Tony sales were down thirty nine percent. The Shares plummeted by nineteen percent in like several hours. I owned Midway, um, but even and it was it had been doing well before that. It dropped. Mm. Dropped by 19%, still wasn't a Rule 1 sell for me, though. It was only about 8% below my buy price, and I was wondering, well, is this bad news? Should this be a bad news sell? But I I waited a couple of hours, and then it did become a Rule 1 sell, so I didn't have to worry about whether or not it was a bad news sell anymore. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you about that situation. In that sort of a scenario, sales down 39%, share price plummets 19% in the morning,
1: what would you normally do? Yeah, I'd probably sell, um, but but usually that's decisions taken care of by either rule one or sentiment when something big like that happens. And uh, I noticed on the bread later this morning it was it was like a centum of its sell price, but I, I had a look at the, the, the sell line and it didn't make sense and I had an email exchange with Brett quickly, so thanks, Brett, and he pointed out that because... Today's date is the 1st of March. There was a little bit of a um, a trough created by the end of February and the 1st of March, but it was so small you couldn't see it on the graph. Uh, and uh, if if people are wondering about the lines on the bread later and it's early in the month, they might want to go back and put a date in of 28th of February 2022, which of course you can do and see what the cell line was like before the end of the month. But um, I have uh, Midway as a sell at the moment.
0: Right. Now, I read a little bit about why their sales were down, something to do with global pulp stocks trending lower due to COVID-19 production and supply constraints. I know, I think you have talked before about a pulp commodity graph.
1: Yes. Originally, I think we used uh, soft lumber as the graph for Midway, but uh, we changed it to pulp because that's basically what they're selling. Um, but I looked up. It's pretty hard to find a graph for pulp. But I looked up uh, one which I found on the the. It's called Fred. Fred dot St. Louis Fed. So it's the St. Louis Fed in the U.S. Uh, and it has a a graph for pulp, but it looks strong to me. So I'm I'm not sure if I'm using the wrong graph or whether the comments they're coughing up is the reason why their sales are down are completely accurate. What graph are you using?
0: Yeah, I don't have one. That's what I was yeah, going okay. to ask you, what you uh, what you, what you, were looking at.
1: Yeah, so I was looking at um, this one at the St. Louis Fed, which will be a US graph and, and applicable to the US. So that's, it's quite possible there's another one out there which is more applicable to Australia, but I couldn't find another one when I was just, looking to today.
0: Just wondering if we could have uh, predicted this by looking at uh, pulp commodities, but uh, yeah.
1: Anyway. Well, we should be able to, but... Um, it doesn't appear to be the case, mm. which does make me think like I'm using the wrong graph. By the way, when this kind mm. of thing happens, yeah, so I'm not convinced I'm using the right graph.
0: Well, that was brutal uh, for mm. those of us that held midway 20 percent down <laughs> in, a, in a day. Oh my god! Well, the same it thing's happening
1: some- to me today. The same thing's happening to me today with Sandfire Resources. It's down thirteen oh. percent as of time of recording. So I've had to sell out of that as well. It's just crossed its sell line. So people might want to have a look at that. Uh, And it seems like that was on the basis of uh, results not meeting analysts' predictions. I think the results are quite strong, but analysts had thought they'd be a little bit stronger and had even forecasted a bigger dividend, which I think is one of the problems. And there was some changes to the forecast for the new mine they've bought in Spain called Matza, which to me, like my reading of the results were, okay, a little bit of a change there, but the analysts have gone apeshit over the Look, looking like Matsu will will have a higher cost of running than what they first thought.
0: Right. Mm.
1: Oh, that's no good. No. And the copper price is still strong, so it's a bit of a another case oh. of a stock dropping when the commodity price is strong. Oh. Which leads me to think that okay, I've sold it, but it, it may it may actually come back quickly.
0: Yeah. Speaking of things dropping, uh Pro a major construction company that's, uh, among other things, is supposed to be building this massive luxury apartment development in Queen Street in Brisbane. It's ended administration. Um, I remember a while ago, I I think I mentioned this on the show, but probably sometime in the last year I was talking to a mate of mine who um, is a developer down on the Gold Coast, and he told me then that uh, they were starting to have problems with – some construction companies or suppliers uh, going into administration. And he said, uh, you wait until the the COVID um, money runs out mm. and you, you're going to see construction companies all over the place falling over. And uh, this is one, this isn't the first that I've seen, but this is possibly one of the biggest pro builds, one of the largest building companies in the country, gone into administration, caught everyone's surprise According to union uh, executives, uh, it's between 7 to 10 million owed to subcontractors in this particular instance. Um, not not a good sign when you start to see big construction companies going under.
1: Not a good sign at all. It's usually the sign of an impending recession because that usually is what happens at the start of recessions. It's a good point about the COVID money and uh, people like Alan Kohler have been talking for a while about zombie companies, companies that are only still living and walking because of the COVID funding they're receiving from the government, so we might see some more of those as that COVID funding has been pulled. But the problem with builders going into recession is that they employ a lot of people, and if there's money owing to the the subcontractors, then they're going to have to lay staff off as well. So that can be a big hit. And, of course, there are people who have already paid their deposits on some of these buildings, especially if they're apartment buildings, who will Mm -hmm. lose their deposits too. So Mm. it does have a terrible impact on the economy. In this case, uh, it looks like it's as much as problems with supply chains and and labour costs and not getting labour and all that kind of stuff as much as it is the fact that this company has a South African parent and I think the South African parent has drawn the line and is not willing to put the $10 million in that it needs to to keep the company afloat. So uh, there might be something else at play behind the scenes from a corporate point of view. Like they might think it's a good way to to shut down and get out of Australia if that's their strategic intent. Um, But, yeah, if we see some more of these, that's not a good sign for the economy.
0: Well, I did read that there had been apparently uh, a strategy to sell the Australian part of Bill to a Chinese company, (laughs) uh, which the federal government put the kibosh on. (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, that uh, yeah, right. South African company parent has pulled the pin finally. Right. Yeah. So a lot of different stuff going on. Hopefully it's not the beginning of uh, many more to come. Ooh. Berkshire Hathaway's annual letter to shareholders. <laughs> Warren Buffett, Christmas time for value investors. <laughs> yeah,
1: Yes, yeah, on a brighter note. Christmas time yeah. in March.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I... Uh, I read the first bit of it. Anyway, skimmed the the rest of it, but I read the the comments from Warren. A lot of good stuff in there, as always. My favourite. Whereas he says, teaching like writing has helped me develop and clarify my own thoughts. Charlie calls this phenomenon the orangutan effect. If you sit down with an orangutan and carefully explain to it one of your cherished ideas, you may leave behind a puzzled primate, but you will yourself exit thinking more clearly. And I... Was thinking maybe we should call this podcast change it to the orangutan podcast.
1: <laughs> I wonder why Charlie used the orangutan in the in that example, in the, like a two year old or a lampshade. Because <laughs> orangutans are funny; they're inherently funny, and Charlie no. is
0: uh, inherently a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> he is, yeah.
1: Uh, it's good. It is absolutely true, as you and I both know from putting out podcasts. You do you do learn a lot more and clarify your thinking when you're um, when you you talking about it and teaching people, don't you?
0: Same as writing a book. You know, mm. I, I
1: found that with the last book, the psychopath
0: book, like it, it forces you to, I mean, if you want to do a good job and you don't want people to come back afterwards and say you're a complete idiot, what the hell are yeah. you talking about? You have to really think through your position mm. and you have to back it up and you have to challenge yourself and, and get other people to challenge all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I know with the podcast, certainly, um, you know, I know that from your perspective, the, you know, the podcast has forced you to quantify some uh, some things that were previously just gut feel for you for
1: 30 years. Yeah, second nature. That's right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, you do, I, if you're an operator who's not stopping and teaching people, you do operate at speed, so you, you don't have to go back and think about why you're doing it from first principles. So teaching does force you to do that. So what yeah. were
0: your uh, highlights from the Berkshire Hathaway I'd,
1: letter? I had quite a few, so sorry if I if I take some time here. You might want to edit it if it gets too long. But the, the thing which strikes me every year when I read the letter is that first page with the returns um, from, you know, way back when, 50-odd years ago through till now. And the thing that strikes me always recently is that mm-hmm. the good years were really early on, probably up until about the 70s. You know, if, if you look at it, I think, Going back, 1976 was the largest year um, in terms of returns. And Berkshire had 129.5% return that year versus the S&P 23.6. So, you know, bonds a year for them that year. 79 was similar, 102% versus S&P 18.2%. But for this century... Their largest year was thirty-two point seven percent, and that was in in a year when the S and P was up thirty-two point four percent. So, it's certainly they're certainly still doing well and certainly still having good years, but they're slowing down. And now, Buffett always claims that's because they have they're a larger business, they have larger funds to manage, and they have a lot of cash holdings. But it, it does make me think that the other thing that's happened over the years is Buffett's style has changed. So if, if people are familiar with his story, and I guess they are, he started off as a deep value investor in the Graham School of, uh, of picking up cigar butts and getting one last puff before tossing them aside. And then he changed, uh, I'm not sure exactly of the date, but it would have been probably around the 70s or so, and became a, a quality investor and, and famously said he'd rather buy a quality company at a reasonable price than a, a, a bad company at a great price, Uh so I'm, I'm wondering whether it's, you know, Buffett's being a bit of a magician here and saying, look over there at all the cash I'm holding, that's slowing that's me down, when really what potentially is slowing him down is the fact that he uh, isn't, isn't really a, a deep value investor anymore. So that's, that's the first thing. It, it is certainly the case that they've got lot, a lot of more cash to invest in, but he comes out later on in, the, in the, the letter and says that Berkshire Hathaway is now, I think, the biggest owner of infrastructure mm. by a corporate company in America. Mm. Uh, and I think that's you know again pointing towards why Berkshire isn't getting those big returns that it did early on, and infrastructure, if, if you think about it, is a good is a good investment for for Buffett. It's kind of makes a lot of sense to me because he looks for quality, predictable earnings in companies with what he calls a moat, so they have a a big barrier to entry. Uh, he's got lots of cash so infrastructure requires lots of big investments which is a barrier to entry so uh, they often are government monopolies or highly government regulated so uh, that that provides some level of predictability in their earnings and it's kind of what in some respects berkshire hathaway now reminds me of a super a superannuation fund much like the big ones in australia or, or in canada for that matter they tend to be big like ours and super funds are, are going through a stage where they're trying to invest in as much infrastructure as possible because they are a place to park large amounts of money, get a decent return and not have the volatility that you could get from investments in other companies. And if you look at like the takeover of Sydney Airport just recently, that was driven by super funds and that was an infrastructure play. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is APA, which i seem to think may have had an approach recently as well. But but they're infrastructure funds, and they really do tick all the boxes for a Berkshire Hathaway investment. However, they tend not to be high – well, they are, by definition, not high growth because they're often – you know, the price rises are tied to CPI and things like that by the government. So I kind of think that, yeah, Berkshire Hathaway's um, still doing well, but it is slowing down. I'm not sure we're going to get the sort of – I'm not sure for how much longer – uh, they're going to get the sort of 20% a year returns that they've been getting over their, over their previous life. Mm. Um, so that's that point. One of the things that struck me again was just the way that Buffett is so humble in, in what he writes and he talks about, um, you know, the the he and Charlie's keenness to have long-term shareholders, how they care about them, how they think about them, how they try and align their objectives with them. And that resonates with me as well. And, and I don't know about you, Cam, but... You know, I can't underscore the feeling of responsibility that that has that I take for QI QAV, and we spoke about about teaching things and how it makes you think clearer. But, but particularly for an investing type podcast, if you're teaching that, it does come with a, a great deal of responsibility. And uh, it, you know, it's getting the teaching right and the knowledge that people out there are trusting their savings and futures to us. Um, it. I've always kind of felt that because I've been doing it for for Jenny and Alex, for my family for a long time. So that responsibility has always been there, but it's even more keenly felt by me, I guess, going forward. And I I guess the reason why I raise it is uh, that it'll be, I think it'll be the emotional response that some of our listeners and investors um, start to have themselves as their investments, uh, you know, gain a bit of traction and become meaningful in their lives. And I think if you don't have that kind of feeling about it, then you're, probably taking it too lightly and, and you'll you'll make more mistakes than you should. But I think having that sort of sense of responsibility and stewardship is a good thing and it, it comes out in, in Buffett's a- annual letter as well.
0: I agree. It, 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 he always does have this warm, fuzzy family sort of feel about his letters and his t- talks when he talks in uh, person. And I noted um, on uh, one of the sections here he said, I make many mistakes. Uh, I like that. <laughs> <He> it's... <admits Yeah. laughs> He's he's always the first person to admit that he gets it wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is which
1: is good. You want to hear that? He's a good marketer, isn't he? Before you challenge me on my mistakes, I'm just gonna step up and say <laughs> I make them. Yeah, it's good.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> you know it's you know we, we we've said this many times on this show too with our weekly checklist or stuff that we pick. Like, uh, you, you know, you're 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 not quite a god. Yeah, We've <laughs> we've got you nominated. Uh, in godhood, but you're not quite a god. We're humans, and humans make mistakes. Even if they have yeah. a really good system, and like Buffett, they've been doing it for a million years and, you know, been very, very successful, uh, he's a human at the end of the day.
1: Correct, yeah. Yeah, we haven't haven't greased the palm of the Catholic Church enough yet, so but one no. day maybe. No, yeah. no,
0: yeah. <laughs> By the way, it's, it's, not, it's not their palm that they want greased, but that's another story. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'll leave that one alone. But um, they won't. <laughs> no. If, if only they would leave that alone. <laughs> if only. <laughs> anyway. Oh dear. Okay. Um, a couple of other points he makes. Again, Buffett talks about the importance of float, and that's he's talking about the money held by insurance companies within the Berkshire Hathaway group uh, that that needs to uh, may need to be redeemed um, over time. So can turn over quickly for car insurance, but can be long-term for life insurance. And Buffett's always uh, tried to write policies which are profitable and therefore the float is his to invest. And, you know, I, I, you can't underscore the importance of that for Berkshire Hathaway. It's really like having an interest-free loan uh, that he can go and invest and not have to worry about paying any um, a, any yield on or any uh, mortgage payments on. Mm. Uh, and that's sitting at $147 billion now, so it's a sizable free loan to Berkshire Hathaway which definitely boosts their um, their profits he, t- he talks about the giants of of his business now and he said there's four giants there's the insurance business Apple is is now such a large part of their um, their investments that it's uh, it's uh, you know getting up to being 25 percent of the worth of the company um, railroads is his third giant and MEG is his fourth giant so Going back to what I said before about infrastructure, railroads and energy certainly fit into that almost monopoly-like characteristics that Buffett seeks. And, you know, he's doing the right thing by his shareholders here. He has a lot of money that he's trying to steward and keep from going backwards. And he's saying, basically, I may not get great returns going forward, but, you know, trust me, you're not going to lose a lot of money as well. And certainly infrastructure fits that bill. And uh, if you think about it, like, it, I mean, some people might want to consider this, um, they're listening to this podcast, but, you know, 20 years ago, there were a lot of infrastructure stocks on the share market. There's only a couple at the moment. But one of the benefits of investing in them is it takes time, but the dividends grow to a stage, especially if you reinvest them, when after about 10, 15 years, you're really getting your at least 20% return just from the fact the dividends are that much bigger. So if I, if I think about APA, which I spoke about before, APA is Australian Pipelines. It's, it's just basically the pipeline infrastructure to, um, send, to send gas around Australia. Uh, it's a low growth company because of that, it only really grows if they acquire another pipe network or, or buy another um, or add to their current pipe network. It tends, you know, they can get, I guess, some some fee raises from the, the gas companies that use their pipes, but it's it's all pretty low growth, um, solid, um, heavy capital investing, but they do pay, you know, around a five percent yield, and even with low growth, that that company over say ten years is probably going to double its uh, its worth, and therefore the yield's growing to ten percent and if you're reinvesting it it's compounding as well alongside the growth of the company and so you know over a period of time the dividends become really important and you reinvest them they compound and if you get up to sort of a, to become a long-term shareholder in those companies you can get 15 16 17% growth dividends and capital combined in a in a low growth company so i can see what the attraction is to buffett for that mm. Uh, I think that's probably it. The last point I'll make is that he freely admits that he has lots of cash and the way he's been deploying it because he can't find things to buy, as he calls them elephants, is by doing share buybacks. So uh, that's one of the things propping up the the Berkshire Hathaway share price. They've bought back something like $50 billion in the last two years. Uh, So it's uh, it's certainly a meaningful thing for them at the moment.
0: What are you tapping in in the background?
1: Sorry, my pen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I read. Uh, I think that they're sitting on two hundred billion dollars in cash at the moment.
1: Are they really? I, I had a smaller number, but that's that. I wouldn't. That might wouldn't, be. Uh, that might be
0: Australian. Um, yeah, so. it could be
1: Australian. I think it was about one hundred and fifty billion of cash. I read one hundred and forty-seven, right. something like that. Yeah. And I saw, you know, Charlie was talking
0: about it in his uh, Daily Journal Q and A, and he was saying, you know, it's not that we want to sit on Mm. cash. We just can't find anything worth buying at a price we're willing to pay for it. Yeah. Um, Some other quotes that I liked out of Warren's part of the letter, Charlie and I are not stock pickers. We are business pickers. Personally, I'm a nose picker, but uh, (laughs) it doesn't pay as well. Business pickers. What do you think about that statement?
1: You feel like a business picker? No, a bit of a stock, a bit of both, I suppose, bit of a stock picker. Um, what he's saying there is he's not chasing short-term returns. Again, he's chasing businesses which are going to be robust for the long term. So it is, I mean, he has grown to be a, a different investor to the way I invest. Uh, he's, he's no longer a value investor, I think. He's more like a super fund.
0: Well, that is the free episode for this week. So as I hinted at the beginning of the show, we have a free episode and a premium episode every week. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for another half an hour to an hour, uh, where we answer a lot of questions that we have from QAV Club members uh, via email or on our Facebook group. So QAV Club is our premium uh, offering, I guess. There's a longer episodes you get every week, you get access to Tony's checklist and our getting started guide on how to use that. Um, You get access to our private uh, Facebook group. You get access to ask questions of Tony every week. And uh, we also do events when COVID allows us around the country, dinners uh, where we (laughs) sit down with our members and have a chat. We do some video calls, Zoom calls, that kind of stuff. If you're interested in checking that out, go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au, and uh, click on the link. Set up a free trial, and you get access, I think, to two weeks' free trial. You get to have a look at all of that kind of stuff, listen to the premium episodes, and see if it is right for you. Uh, But you can just keep listening to the free episodes till the end of time, if you like. And if you just want to know what stocks to buy each week, check out our new offering, QAV Lite, where we do a couple of stock picks each week, and we'll email them to you, and you can just buy those and uh, not have to worry about doing all of the work for yourself if that's the way that you want to operate. You can find that at qavpodcast.com.au slash light L-I-G-H-T. With that... Stay safe and uh, good luck with your investing. We'll be back next time. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Pty Limited. Authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 001292718. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.